Hi, welcome to the second series of Let's Go Kick-Ass today. I'm your host, Vicky Carter, and I get to interview incredibly kick-ass people from the fields of music, adventure, and culture. So if you want to feel empowered and inspired, you've come to the right place. In this episode, I chat to the super talented composer and pianist, Nikki Yo. We talk about a variety of different things, including how she started playing piano when she was just three and the trials and tribulations of a career in the music industry. Know your worth and always keep your integrity. The best thing you can do is really push yourself and don't let too many other people's opinions of you or your work cloud your judgment. I also speak to four world record elite marathon runner, lifelong vegan and sanctuary owner Fiona Oakes about how she gets over the pain during her running and why she does it. There is another element to sport which always gets missed and that's the mental approach and if you've got a reason to be out there that's far greater than anything else that you can value on this planet you will I think find that ability to dig that extra bit deep. Finally, I speak to Ruby Warut, CEO and co-founder of Wooker Period Pants, about menstruation, if it's still such a taboo subject, and how period pants are the future. Young generation, it's our duty, but it's our duty to educate the older generation as well, so that they don't pass that incorrect information to the next growing children. First up is talented pianist and composer Nikki Yo, who's worked with Courtney Pine, The Roots, The List Goes On. She talks to me about the beautiful, unusual places she's performed at, the process of creating her solo album, Solo Gemini, and her musical influences on her work, as well as jazz as a genre. I ask her, what inspired you to play the piano? I started playing the piano when I was three years old. Three? Yeah, it was. Um, my nan had bought this little toy piano from... I'd say it was an antique shop, but it was kind of a junk shop in the, the market, very trendy market, um, Exworth Market, but it used to be very oh, working yeah. class. Yeah, now mm. it's all like really beautiful eateries. So she bought this like little Victorian toy piano and I'd bash out some tunes and then they realised, my family started realising that I was playing actual tunes like nursery rhymes or copying off the TV. You copied off the TV, you were able to play like, just from copying? Yeah, like little simple melodies. I mean, not sort of like... I'm not Mozart, you know. <laughs> <laughs> but still, that's very impressive. It, you know what? I don't, didn't realise that was a big deal until I actually had a child. And I'm like, oh, yeah, I guess three years old is quite it's quite a big deal, really. Mm. I started having piano lessons when I was about five. I had a few. Didn't like necessarily having lessons, so I had a couple. And then my mum bought me a keyboard to, to practice on, a Bon Tempe, this, like, 1970s electric piano. <laughs> which was cool and then I started really getting into it and my granddad who was a London taxi driver he um, I lived with my nan and my granddad and my mum and he was like you know we need to get her a piano so um, he worked extra shifts in order to buy me a piano Aww. yeah he took a loan out of the bank for 300 pounds wow. which was a lot of money back yeah. in the day and worked extra shifts to pay off for that loan to buy me my piano oh that's lovely and when mm. you started playing piano, mm -hmm. was it a labour of love? Was, did you find it difficult to actually start practising or you're, mm. you're, that's it, you're enthralled by it? Always been a passion. Mm. Just like, yeah, well, if I was bored, I'd go and play the piano. If, um, you know, no, no one ever had to tell me to practise. That's so good because I remember as a kid, I was pushed to play the piano. And when you're pushed mm. to play something mm -hmm. or do something, you don't want to do it. Absolutely. But because you did it just 
on your own accord, then you fell in love with it yourself. Yeah, I mean, I think it's probably the same. And, you know, you're very gifted with, you know, language and communication. So, you know, yeah, it's it's true. (laughs) You know, the work that I've always done with you is like you're very natural. So that's your thing. So everybody's gifted in a different way. Not everybody's gifted in music, but um, everybody wants their child to be gifted in something. And sometimes musical instruments are the most obvious thing of, let me see if you've got that gift. And then I'm paying loads of money for it, so let me push you, push you to be good. So I understand from a parent's perspective, but to be honest, you've either got that in you or you haven't, haven't. And there are other wonderful gifts in the world that need to be celebrated as well. So not everybody can communicate easily like yourself. Um, Some people would absolutely freak out Mm. to just have sit in front of a microphone. So, you know, everybody's got their strengths. That's what makes the world go around. I know, exactly. Mm. Everyone's unique with their own gifts. Absolutely, yeah. So what was it like from, you know, from that period of your life where you've just navigating your way around a piano to then creating and collaborating and gigging around the world? Well, it's always sort of been on my radar, really. I'd always had the ambition or desire or I guess maybe intuition that I would be a musician. So even like when I went to um, my um, English grandparents and my mum, they took me to my dad's um, heritage and cultural land of Malaysia when I was eight years old because they wanted me to see where that side of my family, how they lived and, you know, that kind of thing. And I remember my nan buying me like a really small little pink fly fly bag, like Aww. a little. It's called a flight bag. No mm. one ever has those now, right? <laughs> <laughs> flight bag. <laughs> and she, and she said like, this is your flight bag. So when you're touring around the world, when you're older, you could take this with you. Oh, that's so sweet. <laughs> it's so cute. She sowed right? the seed at a young age. Right. I was I was like, okay, and I just rolled with it. I was like, yeah, you know what? Yeah, I can do that. I mean I don't have that bag anymore, sadly. I was gonna say, <laughs> but do you use a flight did you use a flight bag and do you still do so? Something similar when you're touring? Yeah, I absolutely love travelling and love like anything to do with like travelling. I'm always like perusing luggage and bags online. <laughs> <laughs> so that would be like the lightest one to put all of my stuff in. So um yeah, so it's all I've had a passion and I I love it's not very PC now, but I do love flying. Mm. I wish it wasn't causing such uh, an impact on our beautiful environment, but I do love traveling and I actually love the whole process of going to the airport and flying, but I'm gonna have to find a different way to get around now. It's really difficult when you've got such a love for traveling and you've got to oh think, God. okay, we've got to be more ethical now. And yeah, right. you won't be able to reach to these more far-flung countries or you're mm-hmm. gonna have to travel by boat and other means, which makes it more difficult especially when you've got yes. a certain time limit that you can only use with regards to like holidays. Absolutely. So it's like, well, if it's going to take me 10 days to get there. Yeah. I'm only really going to have four days there if I've only got a certain amount of holidays. So. Yeah, good. Uh, a friend of mine who's an amazing musician, Rachel Musson, she's a fantastic tenor saxophone player. She actually did a gig, I think it was in Norway, some mm. Scandinavian far, far place. And she decided she's not going to fly. She's not going to take like an easy jet cheap flight. She's going to go with train and boat and fisherman's boat and wow good for her (laughs) it took her forever but she did it and she come back the same way as well that's amazing amazing but she's like mate not i can't do that every every (laughs) week (laughs) i'll just be traveling a lot of time yeah Yeah, exactly you spend a lot of time traveling because a lot of musicians are one of the impacts on their mental health is touring is it's that constant moving and Mm -hmm. the the pressure to perform at a high standard Mm. day in day out and being away from your loved ones but you, you never had any difficulties with that then it's a weird one i mean i have always loved playing anywhere 
you know, whether it's home in the UK, in London, or on the other side of the world. And it's, I've always loved that whole process of being away with, a, with you know, your band, or even if it's me doing a gig on my own. And I haven't really had um, the kinds of lengthy tours that a lot of, say, pop musicians would have. So it's like with the jazz thing, it's like you're away for a bit and then you're home. It's not like you're away for six months mm. at a time. So, um, yeah, it doesn't really have that same kind of impact on your life. The thing that it does have an impact on is coming back into, I guess, regular civilian life, so to speak. <laughs> and like having to then prepare dinner, get up and do the school run <laughs> as, as a mum, you know. Yeah. Um, but it's it's if I if it's one of those double edged swords, because if I don't go on the road and I don't tour, then I really miss it. And there's part of you that's just like, I need to get back out there. I need to play. And then when you're um, away, then you're like, yeah, I do miss home as well. <laughs> I miss my son or whatever. But uh, it's just one of those things. I, I love what I do. So I'd much rather do that than be uh, doing an office job every day. And that's it. You found what sets your soul on fire. You found what you're talented at. And if you can mm. do each at an equal balance and be able to drop in and drop out of either, then that works well. That's sure. really good. And I think it's like a, a mate of mine, he always makes his bed on the on the road the bass player in my band and <laughs> I said why do you do that when there's like you know somebody who comes in and does your bed for you and you're in a hotel right it's not like we're staying somewhere for a week um and he's like well it's always kept him constant and consistent like you make your bed every day at home you make your bed at, on the road it gives you a perspective on on your life and doesn't matter where you are this is just what you do so I don't say I do that in hotels. <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, I'm here for a break, darn it. Like, <laughs> do you know? Well, you do all the time at home. Yeah, I do. Yeah, definitely. What unusual places have you been to and, and performed in? Yeah, um, one of the most beautiful gigs I did, I guess all of the most beautiful gigs I've done have been in the Caribbean. That's a, that's oh, a, gosh, yeah. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> so <laughs> I did in 2000, I think it was a 2001, these guys called me to do a concert in Barbados. They said, do you want to come and do a gig in Barbados? Oh, my gosh, yes, I could do that right now. <laughs> Same. I'm just like, anytime you want me to do a gig in Barbados, I am there. And it was for, um, you know, the supermodel Gemma kid? Oh, yes. For her parents, they have a jazz festival every year. Oh, fantastic. In Barbados. Right. In Barbados. Oh, and jo Jodie Kid was there and her brother. Oh, yeah. and It was very cool. They were they're so nice as well and they put a stage over the swimming pool oh my gosh <laughs> yeah. was it see-through no if only it wasn't. i would have been terrified if it was see-through though because then you I, I thought i would have been falling in i'm glad it wasn't see-through and the grand piano as well on top right? oh my gosh there was a grand an piano. Grand pi yeah full length yeah <gasps> crikey oh my uh, this, this stresses me out <laughs> yeah. i was borderline stressed but then i love to swim so i was like partly i just wanted to just get in the water yeah like, it's actually like because if i see water i've just got to jump in that's just my thing i'm like i've got mm. to swim but um yeah, that that was beautiful, absolutely beautiful. That's so serene and calming. I can imagine that setting Amazing. is stunning. Yeah. And speaking about water, you like to jump in. I know you've spoken previously before about gigging. I think it was in Scandinavia, and, the, yeah. and you went um, and performed somewhere. And then you did some traditional baths. That's afterwards. it in Finland. I, I think that's that's yeah. Well, I just come back from there when I saw you actually mm. for that interview. Um, that was brilliant. I mean, uh, the I think the water was five degrees. Although I think then the woman at the ladies pond in Hampstead Heath said to me, it never actually gets more cold than that. It's the, it's the top layer can freeze, but the water is always 
at oh. five to, yeah that's why it doesn't freeze completely all oh, the way right. down to the ground like the top layer will freeze, yeah so um otherwise it would be just all complete completely ice mm. so um that was so cool because they have like a sauna there as well so you can jump in but you know you can get warm again as well I can see why you love gigging. You're living your best life. <laughs> I'm living my best life. <laughs> I will rinse out every single moment of an opportunity if I travel. Like some of the guys will be like, yo, I'm going to stay in bed till like 10 o'clock. And I'm just like, I'm going up. I'm going to go for a run. <laughs> yeah, make the most of it. Explore yeah, the city. Especially totally. when you wake up early and you go for a run and you see the city yeah. and the place waking up. I yeah. think that's always oh, so beautiful. I agree. Yeah. Yeah, that's that's incredible. Um speaking about all the all the different gigs and and who you've gigged with. Mm. I mean, has there been any moments where you've turned yourself and and you just thought, "Wow, I'm I'm really feel blessed to be here right now performing with this person?" Yeah, it happens a lot. I mean, it even happened the other day like I was um just doing a little gig with Dennis Baptiste. Um the saxophone player that I played with quite a bit and we both like we were playing some standards it was literally it wasn't a an advertised gig it was just a gig it was a corporate gig for a, for a, a launch for a festival actually private private invite so um we played this one standard and it was really cool and then we both decided to play the head double time but neither of us looked at each other nobody said anything and we just went for it. It was like pure magic. Wow. And, yeah, and the bass player in the band, Gary Crosby, he was just like, did you guys plan that? It was so weird. And we was like, no, we, that, we just felt to do that. And to me, I mean, that is what it's about for mm. me. You know, having that connection with people that I've played with for a long time. And it's almost like telepathy. Mm. And then you're really just, you know, reaching into the realms of artistic beyond rather than actually physically playing an instrument becomes something intangible and you cannot do that again it's, it's not a thing that you do voluntarily it's something that just either happens or it doesn't that kind of synchronicity that's just yeah a blessing it's a shared magic moment that you know will mm. give you goosebumps at the time 100 percent. even thinking about it now i can get goosebumps about that moment oh that's wonderful mm -hmm. And so you you play a variety of different gigs, uh, music festivals and, mm -hmm. and corporate gigs and mm -hmm. with bands. What's it like coming out with your with your solo work now with your with your solo album, solo Gemini, sorry, and duets as well and mm -hmm. performing and gigging around loads of different places? I love it. I mean, at the moment, I'm um, getting ready to do some concerts with Zoe Rahman. So we've been doing a duo project. So it's two pianists. We both happen to both be women, but we don't make a big deal out of that. We're just two musicians. And um, we're going to be playing Pizza Express in Soho on the 18th of March. And we're going to play the Sage Gates Head, which is up north in the northeast. Um, and that is on the 22nd of March. And so for me, it's like that's it's a weird project for us, like in a, in a good way. We both keep saying it's so weird having both of us because we have so alike in a lot of ways and then suddenly you've got four hands at your disposal wow yeah so it's like she'll be like oh you know sometimes you think i want to play the bass and the chords and a melody and a harmony and octave above and you can't because your hands are only so big when there's both of us we can do exactly that 
That's insane. How does this work? So <laughs> obviously it's practice, and yes. yes, and so you know each other so well. You've got this partnership, yes, and you know and you went know when the when the flow is. That must be incredible for listeners, for 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 anyone and everyone just seeing there and seeing that happen. Yes, it's 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 a beautiful thing. I mean, we we play on two pianos. There's one point where Zoe comes over to my piano. We're playing on one piano, but um, it's yeah because there's a language within jazz as mm. well that is universal but all jazz musicians know it so there's all of that stuff but then there's musical chemistry and then there's piano language as well so there are some things we do that are just super pianistic other things are just like based on being London jazz musician and that kind of vibe that you get from having all of those different influences like there's a little bit of reggae in there there's a little bit of there'd be swing there's a little bit of funk there's there's a whole kind of different kind of uh, London sound that we have um, and we're both composers so we play completely original material our own material 50 50 we've made it very fair you know no girl dramas on this gig good yeah, <laughs> yeah. that's nice yeah so talking about your influences um whilst composing your tracks is it something that you've had in your mind for a long time which you think mm-hmm. yeah you've stemmed and and it, from all of your experiences and you've collected that and mm. you you kind of put them on the side and you think oh i do want to work on that track one day or it just came naturally before this project there's a couple of pieces that i'd actually written that were just for two pianos so the actual title track of my album solo gemini that piece was written for two pianos and I used to play along with a recording of myself playing it or like um, I'd play that live um, sorry I'd put that video on the screen this is before people were really using screens this is before the multimedia mm. um, kind of thing so I'd, but I'd play along with that so there'd be an image of me playing and I'd be playing along with that um, wow that's cool it's cool it's cool because I just I heard I heard all those extra parts and I'm like well I need to have those parts, but I can't play all of them. So <laughs> I haven't got enough hands. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah it's like, so Zoe now plays the other part, which is cool. Oh, great! Yeah. And so you were speaking about this London sound that, with your musical influences, mm-hmm. do you think this makes jazz more accessible for for people who may not be the traditional as you know many years ago? That's mm. how they would have accessed jazz or seen jazz. Yeah. And um, do you enjoy? experimenting with these different influences and and doing so yeah i think like whatever you are as a musician wherever you come from that's going to come out in your music so you know yang garbarek who's um i think he's from what's that place i think he's is he danish danish or norwegian don't quote me on one that. of the two he's <laughs> scandinavian yeah, yeah. <laughs> but you hear all of that kind of landscape the space the fjords you hear that in his playing because it's very much very open and it's got that sort of sound and then when you listen to like bebop from like the charlie parker era you can hear new york the chaos in it but also the intricacies of all of i think if you're surrounded by like really intricate architecture that's going to give you a bit of a mathematical brain and all the stuff was very mathematical so it's going to come out in your playing somehow um just going back to the point that you said about how you two female uh, pianists and you don't want to make a big deal out of it do you oh. feel that the media makes a big deal out of it when your 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 posters and your advertising your marketing's going out there or venues or maybe even people who who come and listen to your music yeah um it's a weird one actually because both Zoe and I have come up against such slight challenges with promoters. Mm. So uh, there was one guy, 
uh, who's who shall remain nameless. Yeah. <laughs> I'd I'd done a gig with him with another band, and I said, oh, you know, I released my solo album last year at the time, and I said oh, it'd be great to come and do a solo gig. You've got such a nice piano at your venue, and he said, oh yeah, but we've already had Zoe Rahman. Wow. Yeah, I was like. Okay, but we are two different people. Right? Yeah, we, <laughs> yeah, we make music completely differently and right. we have different sounds. Yeah, and also the fact that we're both, um, she's half Bengali and half English, I'm um, mm. half Malaysian, half English, and maybe like they just get a bit confused. <laughs> like, we're actually two different people. Wow. It's, it's like saying, oh, we can't have another blonde presenter, Vicky. We've got um, somebody else. Do you, do you know what I yeah, mean? Yeah, that's it's, ridiculous. It's, ridic- it's ridiculous. So it's it was um, not just a race thing, but a, the, the gender thing, and it's just... Yeah, it's, it's boring now because it's been going on a long time, you know, or people would call Zoe for a gig and it would they'd be looking for an all-woman band and she'd be like, I'm so not up for that. And then they'd call me or vice versa. Wow. And then I'd get on the phone and say, Zoe, did you just get a call from this person? She'd like, yeah, I knew they were going to call you. <laughs> oh, my <laughs> yeah. gosh. Coming back to your question earlier on about um, making it more accessible, um, for me, like, my mum was never, ever into jazz, ever. Mm. She just didn't like it actually would say i really don't like jazz wow how did she feel when you were like so (laughs) (laughs) i guess my way to rebel was to play jazz but then she came to my gigs and she's like she absolutely loves it and it's not just because it's me playing it's i think it's sometimes people have an image of what they think jazz is Mm. and um, they think it's very highbrow they're not going to be able to understand it and actually it's it depends on who you see i mean there's it's it's like saying I don't like classical music. It's so broad. You could listen to like, you know, 16th century Gregorian chants and then you can listen to like Bach and Stravinsky and it's completely different styles of music. It's the same like with any pop music. If you say I don't like pop music, you think everything's going to sound exactly like Genesis, you know, mm. <laughs> who are fantastic, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> you know, but I think they vary it's, so differently. Yeah, if, yeah and um, from artist to artist, actually, you know, I would say people should just give it a go. Yeah, at, definitely. You know, and you won an award in 2017. At That's the, yes. yes. Tell me a little bit more about that and how yeah. it felt receiving it. It was amazing. It was really amazing, Vicky, because um, I'd literally, you know, I started my career, I started playing professionally when I was 19. Then I had my son when I was about, when I was 30. So there was then a little bit of a, an <laughs> un, unrequested pause, <laughs> unrequested from the universe, but it came anyway. Whereas I think people just thought she's had a baby, she's doesn't need to work. <laughs> I think the baby will just go out and find food for itself. So, mm, wow. yeah, <laughs> <laughs> right. So it was strange because then, you know, then I'm parenting and getting into that whole new learning curve of being a mom and all of that. And then um, my manager, who's been my manager for a long time, said, Come on, you just need to do your album. Let's do it. Let's do your album. So, I when I'd had my son, it was right at the peak of a lot of attention because I'd just done an album with Cleveland Watkiss. It wasn't my first album. It was an, a, like a duo album. And we had a nice tour and stuff like that. And uh, then I found out I was expecting my son. And then all of a sudden, there was this massive gap. Mm. So um, when I recorded the album in 2014, that was 10 years after I'd had my son. How did it feel going back into it? Because it must have felt slightly different. You've changed as a person, your yeah. own personal experiences, and so has the industry as well. Yeah, all of that, all of the above. And it was, I totally procrastinated big time with every 
bit of pushing talk about people pushing he was like my pushy parent in a way <laughs> that's good yeah. yeah he I mean I'm glad he's a brilliant manager and if he hadn't like said come on just get on with it I might have just lost so much confidence in my ability that I wouldn't have got back on the horse so then we sourced how, 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 how I could record it we got some money from jazz services it was a organization that existed at the time and Audubon Music invited me to be artist in residence so I could go and do some writing and oh, record wonderful. my album. Mm -hmm. So we'd record it first because the way a lot of artists do, they record it first and then they shop it around to different um, record labels. And coming from a place where in my 20s I had, you know, massive write-ups in all the major newspapers, um, you know, middle was it the middle page of like Telegraph magazine or in colour and yeah. <laughs> all of this and people knocking on my door we want to sign you to coming from that to then being 40 and knocking on people's doors and saying like I've got this album my manager was doing the knocking I was just like at home trying to bury my head in the sounds a little bit further <laughs> <laughs> and then they're like mm, we're not really interested in that Wow. Right. So then you just think, okay, yeah, then there's all of my lack of confidence is totally um, justified because they're not interested in it either. You know, as an artist, you're quite a sensitive person. Mm. So um, so then I thought, okay, well, they don't want it. I'll just have to put it out myself. Good for you. Right. And actually, that means I've recouped and then some of all of my initial outlay, which is brilliant. And then all of a sudden I had a beautiful surprise that they've invited me. Some They've been nominated to be instrumentalist of the year at the Jazz FM Awards. So I'm like totally the outsider in the race. If there is a race, it's not really a race, but yeah, for one. It's, it, Definitely it's, not an outsider. At the time, yes. <laughs> because I felt like I was really forgotten about. And the two incredible musicians who I was up against, you know, they, they're very successful and um, have done incredible things. And also they are still fantastic, you know, but I thought I don't stand a chance. So when uh, it was Courtney Pine was giving out the award and when he read out my name, I could not believe it. I was, and my manager hadn't told me I won it. He knew actually, but he decided to not tell me because he wanted it to be Aww. a natural surprise. Yes, <laughs> that's lovely. So it's great. And I got to meet the Rolling Stones that night, which was brilliant. Amazing. Yeah. That's so cool. <laughs> it was proper cool. It was yeah. it was great. And actually then like, you know, my career's gone uh, grown from there, strength to strength. So now it's back to where it was, you know. But it's a journey, but that's life, right? Yeah, it's a definite journal. That's yeah. journey. That's incredible. Mm. What advice would you give to someone who's listening and is and is lacking that motivation and that in inspiration that they may they've taken a career break to get back onto their feet, whether that's they've had children or or other any other thing that sure. could have affected them. Sure, I would just say always stay true to yourself. So always um, know your worth and always keep your integrity. Um, the best thing you can do is really push yourself and don't let too many other people's opinions of you or your work cloud your judgment and if you are feeling like you're sort of doubting yourself just remember why you started playing or if or whatever it is you do painting or cooking or whatever your your passion is and just and go with it you know because if you don't put yourself out there then nothing can happen you know, you can be the greatest pianist in your own 
house and just practicing and no one could ever hear you but what is the point of that really you need to play to people you need to have other people's ears listening to you to you play otherwise what's the point what a wonderful woman right every time i've interviewed nikki yo i've always had a fabulous good old chat with her and hopefully that came across in the interview it's really interesting to learn of her journey through the music industry and how that if you do want to take a break from your career whether that be for mental health for children or even switching and changing job it's never too late to achieve your dreams Next up is Fiona Oakes. She's a four world record elite marathon runner, a lifelong vegan. She owns her own animal sanctuary and she talks to me about her natural rejection to meat at a young age and her life as a vegan, her passion for animals, how she ended up casually winning marathons around the world to highlight that plant-based life is best and how she overcomes pain when running a marathon. Altogether, we've got around about 500 animals ranging from huge highland cattle to hamsters literally and everything in between um so we've got horses sheep pigs goats dogs cats turkeys geese you know we've got the full spectrum of like domestic and ex-farmed animals and what inspired you to set up a sanctuary i think it's always been a dream um i didn't actually start tower hill stables as a sanctuary we actually wanted to provide sanctuary to the animals that we'd already rescued we were particularly horses story is that we were both working in London um always I particularly always had this dream of nurturing animals I've been vegan since I was six years old so the natural progression then is to want to look after them and care for them um never thought it was going to be possible and so we were rescuing animals and um at our, our just an ordinary bungalow we got dogs and cats and a few chickens and chinchillas and various other small animals and the larger animals horses we'd got at livery yards and um, one day um, I was cycled home from work and called my horses over. They were in, all in a field together. Uh, seven came, one didn't, and I found him impaled on a fence. Uh, he ne- very nearly lost his life. He went to House and Jackson Vets and he was there for 13 weeks. It's one of the worst injuries they've ever seen. Um, nearly lost his hind quarter. And in that period of time, we decided we got to change the model. We couldn't keep entrusting our animals to people that weren't kind of uh caring for them in the way we wanted and that was back in 1996 and that's when we we managed to acquire tower hill stables which was our other side um and it's just grown and grown and grown from there and so this passion for animals and, and obviously um, an activist as well uh, is reflected in your veganism as you said you've been vegan since you were six yeah. is that what inspired you in the first place is there a pivotal moment you remember when you were six and you're like actually i don't want to eat meat anymore no, actually. I mean, to be honest with you, I went vegetarian. I was three years old. And it was a simple rejection. Don't want it. Don't want it. You know, like a child. Don't like it. Don't want it. And I think after that, I started to ask my mum questions, you know, sort of, well, what, we never had milk. Um, but, you know, where, where do eggs come from? What, what, what's this with these products? I don't, I really didn't understand the concept of the exploitation of animals. And people say that's really remarkable for somebody of six years old, especially back in the 1970s. And then my answer is, to put it into kind of terms that people would understand today, I was just the kid that knew what happened to Peppa Pig. 
Do you know what I mean? Yeah. And um, for instance, if you told most children today, um, you know, Peppers off down, you know, the slaughterhouse today, they would they would be horrified, and you know, if they knew the truth. I just was fortunate enough to, to realise the truth very very early on, and um, it was very very simple. It's never been hard for me to be vegan. It's never been anything but natural. Um, if you love something, you don't want to harm it, mm. and you know, I wouldn't much as I wouldn't want to harm my mum and my dad and my sister. I can always considered animals to be my extended family and that's the honest truth there's no other real explanation it's just a very very natural thing for me it's very unnatural to consider what does happen to animals I, I can hardly believe that in the 21st century it's still going on mm. well veganism is rising in popularity I mean seven mm. percent of the UK average were vegan do you think last year do you think that's risen in the last year oh massively I mean it's 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 every day you see something new, something more positive. I mean, I'm going back to a time when people really didn't know what vegetarianism was. They really didn't. It's really, really becoming so much more mainstream now. And it, for me, I noticed that in things like, I went to um, a vegan festival um, and there was a big football match at Wembley. And I noticed that even some of the vendors that were selling, you know, kind of meat burgers, there was a vegan product there. So people are obviously asking for more walks of life rather than just, you know, you'd have to go to. I remember a time when the vegan festivals, people really used to look forward to vegan festivals. It was the only time they could buy vegan products. Wow. Now you can go in a supermarket mm -hmm. and the full range is there. But, you know, I remember a time when there was absolutely no vegan products available anywhere. No, definitely. Times have changed. Yeah, they really have. Yeah, it's incredible. And obviously, you're an elite marathon runner as well, and you've mm. you've smashed these these world records. And um, you ran over a hundred marathons. Is that correct? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I've run like loads and <laughs> like too many to count. I didn't. I didn't actually set out to be a marathon runner. Mm -hmm. I don't really even now consider myself to be a runner. Wow. And it's a strange story in that after we got the sanctuary back in 1996. I thought to myself, okay, animals are coming in thick and fast. This isn't the answer to just keep rescuing. Obviously, in the immediate, it's the only thing I can do. But what can I do to promote veganism? I don't want these animals to need rescuing. I don't want there to be sanctuaries. At the time, I'm basically living... This is before social media, before the internet, before you could Google search very much. The one thing that I've always been pretty good at is sport, even though I do have a bad problem with my right knee and I was told I had a lot of surgeries in my teenage years and was told I would never be able to walk properly again wow. let alone run so um, and I do limp when I run it's very obvious that I do limp when I run um, but I thought well okay I need to do something positive um, it needs to be very impactful I mean obviously I can say that I believe that plant-based is best or vegan is best but that's just going to be deemed to be my opinion I want to be able to offer proof, actually speak louder than words. And at the time, the only sport that was getting any interest in the UK, female sport, was marathon running because of Paula Radcliffe. She's broken the world record, she's doing really well. So I thought to myself, if I could just compete in and hopefully complete a marathon, that proves, that's got to be definitive proof that as a vegan, you can do anything. Uh, because it was being billed as the toughest, most extreme event in the athletics calendar. And I think people don't realise that 
um, women were only really accepted into marathon running in the early 1980s. The first uh, women's marathon was in 1984 Olympics in Los Angeles. And uh, before that, it was considered too tough, too, too extreme an event for women to do. Um, but I never thought I'd be able to do what I do. And even now, I get doctors that write to me and say, I cringe when I think of you trying to run on that leg. And I actually went to a doctor. Before I was thinking of doing the ultra marathons, I wasn't sure if I'd do myself any damage. And I went to a sports doctor and he said, I simply do not believe you haven't got a kneecap. I'm going to do an ultrasound scan to prove it to myself, to look inside your knee. And he said, I can't believe what you can do what you can do. Oh. It really can't. And um, But I didn't set out to be like an elite marathon runner. Um, I quickly, I realised, you know, when I first completed a marathon, I thought, okay, this is this is a, this is good, but what do I do? I don't want to be. How do I promote veganism through this? Um, I've kind of shown the world that I can do it. And I've proved it to myself and those immediately around me. But how do I take it further? And uh, I realised you were going to involve a lot of training, a lot of hard work, but it it could be very productive for both the sanctuary and to promote veganism because obviously if you do well in a race you get interviewed and people say what do you do for a living i don't do the sanctuary for a living i, I we don't take anything out of the sanctuary put our own money into it but it gives you a chance to advertise it for free and um as well as promoting veganism and it was only because of my running um back in 2004 i got my first elite star in the london marathon so basically that meant that i was going to be running 45 minutes ahead of the main field and the men the cameras were going to be on you. So now, in the space of a couple of years, I've got myself to a point where I could stand shoulder to shoulder with Paula Radcliffe on the start line wow. of a race and light the cameras that go across. And at that point, we decided, me and another guy, Peter Simpson, who were running for a vegetarian cycling and athletics club, uh, we're going to start Vegan Runners um, because it's free advertising for veganism. You're going to be running through the streets of London, no other runners around you. And people are going to notice what you've got written on your chest. And we need that word to be vegan. We need to be out there positively promoting it. And that was back in 2004. It's now one of the biggest running clubs in the UK. And I think one of the most positive forms of accidental activism there's ever been. I really do. Because you've got a captive audience. People, uh, oh, look, what, what's your truth? How do you do it? And you know, obviously, if you're winning races, people want to know how you're winning them. And um, the diet comes up and you can say, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm vegan, I've been vegan all my life practically. And they're kind of really interested. They want some of that. They want some of those times. And um, yeah, so um, it's nothing has been like sat down and sort of planned. I've just grabbed opportunities when and where they've presented and run with them. I don't, obviously my head has to manage things in terms of the sanctuary, but it's got instinct in my heart. If I think it's right, it feels right, I'll just go with it one with it you know creating opportunities so many things i want to unpack there i mean firstly with with being vegan i think a lot of people realizing that, that the health benefits and the positive impact it has on the environment as well and that's why people when they become plant-based yeah. they stay plant-based yeah. um when you're talking about your your knee injuries how did you persevere on the front line next to paula radcliffe because when i have an injury and i'm running it niggles on my mind the whole time and i can't overcome that mental challenge how were you able to do so um well it funnily enough it was paula radcliffe that i once heard say she said you never want to go to the start of the marathon knowing you've got an injury and i've never been to the start of marathon knowing i haven't got one i ignore it i'll just accept the pain and i will always think of those that are suffering more so i might be in pain 
and I generally am in pain, especially with a road marathon after about 18 miles, it really sets in. That's when you really, the repetitiveness of the stride and you basically, if you're running a fast marathon, you're on a flat course, it's just constant, constant, constant pounding. It hurts. And you know, I, I, I've got pictures of me running lack of stages of marathons with tears running down my face. It's hurting so much, but I won't stop. I never give in for the animals. So that's why you continue to do so, because you want to spread the message. Mm. Yeah. yeah, I want to be the best I can to promote veganism in the best way I can. I don't run for... Well, Keegan came over to make the film, uh, and he's going, well, come on, where are they, all your trophies? And I said, I don't know, one's a dog bowl, one's... A, I don't do it for that. I don't... Once I've come back from a race or training or whatever, that's the bit. The running bit's over. I just go on. That's what I needed to do. I only ever used to run two races a year and they would be big city marathons and the reasoning behind that was um, I needed at the sanctuary all the time it's financially more economical and physically more economical in the times that I'm going to be away to just select two races a year one in the autumn and one in the spring and hit them hard with training don't go to any local races I could have gone and won any local race that I want just these two big races. I was invited to run the races. So, you know, I'd get like Jos Herman, Andy Gabrislas's coach would uh, email me and say, if you come to um, Amsterdam and run, I'll pay your expenses, I'll pay your flights, if I want you on the start line. So it wasn't costing the sanctuary anything for me to run other than the training that I was putting in about 100 mile a week. I train alone, my knee's too bad to run on the track because it won't take bends. So I have to do my speed work on my treadmill. I've got this really weird way of doing it, um, but it works for me. I never run with anyone um, because I just I don't have access and time to go to a running club. So I literally bury myself for about 10, 12 weeks and train 10 times a week and really, really hard. 10 times a week? How yeah. is that possible? There's only seven days. Yeah, twice a day, three times. Tuesday, Thursday and Saturday, two sessions a day. Speed work and a recovery run in the evening. Longer run on Wednesday. Recovery run in the evening. I thought that yeah. that, that word is just yeah. a contradiction in yeah. itself. Yeah, I mean, it's all about basically being able to punish yourself, but in different ways. So speed work is hard. You use different muscle groups. So you want to go out, do your speed work. Well, I do it on my treadmill. And then I have to work in between. I never rest in between. It's literally, right, trainers off, go and do the jobs, put the animals away then go out for a recovery run. No, it's incredible. That drive and that persistence is why you've, you know, accidentally smashed world records. <laughs> yeah, I've, I've broken my world, my own world records. I think they've got like six more Guinness certificates up in my kind of gym room. And um, yeah, I mean... Uh, Which ones are the other ones? Uh, that's <clears> for <throat> the fastest woman to run a, a marathon on every continent and at the North Pole in, in not only days elapsed, but actually in running time physically. I'm just wow. the quickest. Uh, I've run the quickest marathons on every continent, so that's um, yeah. And then I I broke that again. I um I I it was a very very difficult series of events to do because when you present to do something for Guinness, they don't just trust you. You have to prove 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 you've really done it yourself. So I've done like um I've come top twenty in the London Marathon and in Berlin. Um, I've come like top ten in major gold star races which is about the best i can ever run I, I i've run 238 that's i'm not going to run any quicker ever um i've done one marathons uh, broke course records around the world won loads of races and i thought okay you know i, I, I can't you know keep doing this I, I don't really 
I think I've basically taken it to where it, it can possibly lead. And one of my kind of friends then, I'm always a bit reluctant to say his friend because people think if your friends suggest you do this, what your enemies tell you to do. But he said to me, he said to me, you've done fast races, you've won loads of races, why don't you do the toughest foot race on the planet, Fiona? That proves the point with the vegan. Oh, yeah, that's a good idea. Which one's that? Marathon de Sable. So this is a tough, you know, week-long race in the desert, you know, carry your own supplies. It's a complete horror. Oh, my God. So um, I thought, oh, that sounds like a good idea. I'll do that. 2012 and um, it sounds like a good yeah, idea yeah i'll do that that did it did in 2011 it sounded great you know i'm going across the desert and uh, 2012 was looming and i'm kind of thinking getting all this gear in this backpack and it's getting like 11 kilos in weight and i'm thinking how am i going to walk all this across the desert for a week but anyway never mind and of course i'm an ethical vegan so back in 2012 there weren't so many um synthetic products so i've got like this massive sleeping bag and it's like a kilo in weight ex-army surplus and everybody else when he arrived in the desert he's got these tiny little things and they're puffing up into you know sort of oh mine's minus 10 rated and it only weighs an ounce and like, <laughs> mine's like like you've got take me down about 10 degrees and it's massive <laughs> what you got there fiona this massive thing in my bag you know i've got a 30 liter pack it's bigger than i am and um the problem was with it the week before the race i fractured two toes Oh my god! So um, I'm now left with the foot, toughest foot race on the planet, Marathon de Sable, with two fractured toes. And I thought, I'm going to go and give it a try. Oh I went, gosh. but by the long stage, which is about 100 kilometres, I stopped at one of the checkpoints and I, my foot was in such a bad state. I took the bits of bandage off that I got because you have to do it yourself. They don't mm. um, give you this kind of support and um i said to the guy i was with paul what do you reckon that is on my foot and it was it's, it's the bone it's the bone sticking out your little toe oh my god see the bone sticking out my little toe because basically they tell you to buy shoes a size too big to allow for the swelling because it gets up to about 55 degree heat baking hot this is incredible and it just took the because my feet were swollen before i went well my right foot was because it was broken so I crammed my feet into my shoe and thought I can just about get away with this if they don't swell. And of course they did swell in the heat, they swell even more. And so I was hacking my shoe to pieces to try and finish. I'd take all the inserts out and like make a hole for these broken toes. Anyway, I got round it, I got round it about mid-range, did the race and um, got the medal. That was the main thing, finishing the Marathon de Sable. First vegan woman to do it, ethical vegan as well. So I'd carted the massive pack with a massive supply. And um, then another friend said, um, why don't you do the North Pole race? See, that's cold. <laughs> and I, I just think, you know, like North Pole and a marathon. How could there be a marathon at the North Pole? This is kind of going real well. And um, I contacted the race and um, sure enough, there was a marathon. It is as near to the geographic North Pole as the Russians can set up their research base, um, you know, for the thickness of ice and landing planes. Um, but the cost massively prohibitive. Couldn't do it. Couldn't think about it. Twelve thousand euros. Couldn't wow. even dream of it. And uh, I think about Christmas Eve um, in two thousand and twelve. The race organizer wrote to me and said, "If you will do my race, I'll give you a place." So I, I went to the North Pole. Wasn't sure how I cope with it because I am notorious for slipping and dislocating my knee. So I wasn't sure how it would go out there. Um, but I won the race, broke the course record, placed on the podium with the top men, 
and um, then some of the other guys in the race said you really really should go for this world record you being the fastest woman to run a marathon on every continent and the north pole you're doing the antarctic race i was entered in the antarctic race later in the year you know and people ask me you know i get loads of people you know um especially with the the game changer film brought um a lot of interest in the in in plant-based living and so kind of people come to me and say well what what would you eat i don't, I don't really know I, I i'm very very basic i don't focus my main focus is not on food but for me there is another element to sport which always gets missed and that's the mental approach and if you've got a reason to be out there that's far greater than anything else that you can value on this planet you will i think find that ability to dig that extra bit deep to get what you want um, and I'm one of those people that I, I could, I'm not selfish enough to want to just like keep going out and training and running and hurting myself. But I'm kind of, if you want, selfless enough to want to do it for the animals. And that's the honest truth. I really don't do it for any other reason. Just go for it and see what you can do. And I, I think, you know, um, the for me, it's once you actually set that goal in your mind of you've got to know why you're out there just going out there and going through the motions it is probably not going to happen for you but if you really believe in what you're doing and believe that what you're doing is making a difference then I do believe it takes you to that next level and um, it's just having self-belief I think and um, as I say knowing why you're doing it and getting that straight in your head and the sky's the limit i mean honestly speaking I, I truly and honestly say this to people if i can do it anyone can fiona oaks is an incredible woman the training she puts herself through the insane challenges sometimes back to back literally just back to back each day going to a different challenge makes me speechless but she has a vision, she has a drive, and that is encouraging, and I hope it inspired you. Next up is CEO and co-founder of Wooker Period Pants, Ruby Raut. We speak about why we need to have honest discussions about health education, breaking the taboo of talking about menstruation on a global scale, and how 4.3 million tampons and pads are flushed every day in the UK down the toilet, and so we need to do something about it. She talks more about period pants, how they're cost-effective, and how she set up her own business. I asked Ruby, women all around the world menstruate in total for about seven years of their life. Do you think society has gotten over the taboo of talking about menstruation? No. One simple answer, no. And I think um, because there's a huge taboo around it, mainly because periods and see, periods are seen as very dirty thing. You know, always from, from if you're looking at the East, uh, from Nepal, India, from where I come from, um, like girls, women are not allowed to go to temple because they are seen as dirty. Wow. Um, to here in the UK, you know, whenever you use a sanitary product, or menstrual product, you are supposed to wrap it and put it in the bin. Those kind of things, like, or hide hiding it. it away, yeah. exactly. So, so again, that is because it's seen as dirty. 
So no, I don't think so. And there is a huge taboo around it. Mm. Yeah, because I've heard in some instances in parts of Africa, you know, children have bled in class and the, and, and the teacher has asked them to leave the room or in, in rural villages in other areas of the world, um, women who are menstruating are taken to a separate area and they're not allowed to mingle with their family. I mean, how do we break this, this cycle of taboo everywhere? Um, educating grandparents. Now, you might seem slightly why grandparents kind of thing. Because when growing up in any kind of culture, especially in Asian culture where I come from, you pretty much believe everything your parents or grandparents tell you. Closed eyes. You know, you never ask a question. So I think we need to educate those grandparents and tell them actually this is absolutely normal thing for to happen for women. And as far as you use the correct menstrual product in a proper way, it's fine. You know, nobody dies. No foods get rotten. Because there are huge stigma around period and touching food or, or or sleeping with the partner, those kind of things. So mm. it just doesn't start and stop somewhere, you know. This this is like we need to ch- change the mindset of the grandparents and then the parents. And I think now what we are doing is we are educating girls as young as possible so that they can openly have the conversation to their parents about period. Mm. Um, so young generation, it's our duty but it's our duty to educate the older generation as well so that they don't pass that incorrect information to the next growing children. No, definitely. I think, yeah, exactly. It's a, it's a rite of passage yeah, yeah, for many. And, you know, it's a part of your life yeah. that's every single month. But also not only educating grandparents and, and young women, but also I think educating young boys as well because yes. uh, half of British girls have been bullied and shamed about their period in schools. Absolutely. I mean, in the UK, does that surprise you at all? It does. I mean, especially when we are so outspoken. So... Me coming from Asian culture is slightly different to growing up here in British culture. But when I found out that you have a separate sex education or education on periods, separate boys and girls are separated, I was actually quite shocked because this this doesn't happen in Nepal. Sex education, anything health education, you get it together. And also, in a way, um, since a very young age, because you're not allowed to go to kitchen, so everybody knows that somebody's on their period because you're not allowed to go to kitchen, you're not oh, allowed wow. to touch water kind of thing. So in a way, the the concept is in, in head of men. But in the UK, women just do everything, whatever they want to do, even in the period. So not many men or boys know about it. So yes, I think education is a, is a huge part. And I think all the sex education should be taught together. We live in a, a world there are men and women, almost half and half, right? So why separate when it comes to education in in terms of health education or sex education yeah of course no that's right i mean uh looking specifically at your period pants so an average woman spends four thousand eight hundred pounds on sanitary products on her lifetime which is shocking um one pack of pads is the equivalent of four plastic bags what makes wicker period pants more cost effective and environmentally friendly and and what are they how do they actually work so um, period pants, are they look like your regular underwear, uh, but in the gusset area, we have got four different layers. So the top layer and the bottom layer are the same fabric made out of lensing micromodal, and they wick mo- any kind of moisture very quickly. 
And then the central layer is two different layers. One is absorbing fabric and then the other one is leak proof layer. So what happens is like when the blood goes in, it almost quickly wicks it, absorbs it and keeps you dry. And then underneath there is a leak proof layer that doesn't let it leak out. So you get like a leak proof undies. Um, that's that's actually how it works. And washing is simple. You just take it out, rinse the blood out and then chuck them with your dark color clothes and hang dry them. And they are there with you for another two years in your drawers. So you never run out of uh, menstrual product anymore. What makes a difference on the long run? We are very cost effective compared to disposable menstrual product. Um, each pair of underwear also replaces 100 tampons and pads going to landfill. Wow. And the plastic associated with you, as you said. I think they recently found out it's equivalent to four, five plastic bags, actually, not four plastic Gosh. bags. So um, I feel like sometimes that women are conned in some way to use their disposable product and not telling the whole reality of it because this plastic product actually ends up in landfill or they are incinerated or they are flushed. In fact, 4.3 million tampons, pads, panty liners are flushed every day in the UK. Every day. That's ridiculous, isn't it? Yeah, and it ends up in the oceans, yes, you know, yeah. affecting our marine life. Absolutely. And then the whole education piece, again, is missing out that when they are teaching about period or menstruation at school, they should be teaching about how to, the choices and how to dispose if they are using disposable menstrual product. Because nobody is born knowing that what to do with the tampons and pads, right? So we need to tell our young girls that actually that goes in the bin and gets never flushed. And also more about the choices that they don't have to just stick with tampons and pads. They are menstrual cup, they are spongy, sponges, they are period pants, right? So. There are other options. Yes. I mean, when I first had my period, actually, I didn't even realize it was my period. So for a couple of days, I didn't yeah. tell anyone because I thought, oh, my gosh, this is a this serious problem. Yeah. And then, yeah, yeah I, I spoke out with my best friend at the time and she said, no, that's your period. And she had to talk me through how to put a pad on, on a pair of underwear because she talk, yeah. was learned from her sister yes. and passed it down to me. So you're right. It's the education of using those. But also there are other options, as you've highlighted, period yes. pants, you know, are the way forward yes. what was the process like of actually investigating and testing all these different methods so obviously before jumping into any business i think everybody should do the market research to see whether your product is market fit um i literally just put it out had the concept in my mind and i was like okay i just wanted to test whether people think the same thing that i do you know and put it out there in some facebook social forums kind of thing and i just said like hey, I'm doing a research kind of thing. Uh, could you help me do some survey? And within 24 hours, I got nearly 800 response. Wow. It was just overwhelming. And everybody was, and not just ticking the boxes, but also making a comment and saying like, oh yeah, they are just horrible. They just give me very um, painful periods or people get irritation and uh, rashes because if you're wearing pads, because they are allergic to glue or plastic or some people have sensory issues, those kind of thing. Um, and when I found out, I was like, okay, so people are obviously not happy with what they are using and are looking for options and choices. Um, for me, the most important thing was like, how can I make it more sustainable as possible? I, I did environmental science, so I was like determined to do something good that is not just for health, but also to the planet. Um, and then the next process was, 
doing the material research, what actually fabric works and what kind of absorbency they have got. Um, we found this amazing fabric that is made in the UK. They absorb 200 times its own weight in water. Wow. So they're like super absorbent. And um, when I then I started, just went to one of the sewing machines shop, sec- bought a secondhand sewing machine and started making my own undies at home. Um, tried myself a couple of months. They actually work. And I was like, okay, so this is good, except they were a bit tight yeah. <laughs> because I made it myself and I, was, I think I made it too small. Um, then we went to one of the last standing uh, manufacturer uh, in Wales, lingerie manufacturer in Wales, and made about 50 uh, prototypes and then brought in and again went to my humble Facebook and went to like, who would like to try some underwear that absorbs your blood and you can wear it again and again? After a week, I had nearly 25 to 30 women randomly just knocking at my door and say, like, I would like to try it kind of thing. That's incredible. Yeah. So I I handed them one pair out and asked them to give me a feedback in a month, two months time. And when they came back, one of the best results was like, they are the most comfortable thing. That's incredible. What a story (laughs) from like humble beginnings as well. You had an idea. You thought, oh, yeah, I really want to change this and do something about it. That's wonderful. So obviously that response has been fantastic. Absolutely. And what has the response been like continuing on and also in, in Nepal as well? Yes, uh, it's been absolutely amazing. And yeah, I think recently the, the biggest moment was recently one of my local magazine published me as the front cover kind of thing. Oh, wow, go you. Yeah, but it was not just me. I felt empowering, but... The fact that they put a topic about period as a front page cover, right? And Imagine that, was like, that years ago. Yeah, yeah, that would be like out, totally out of question, right? Nobody yeah. would talk about it. The fact that they are talking about an underwear founded by somebody with that whole period blood kind of thing. That was revolutionary. I think that was like the biggest moment for me. Um, and also almost all the minister and prime minister uh, of Nepal were reading the magazine. I was like, oh, wow. that's incredible, right? Yes. That's the right way forward, I think so. And then uh, I think that's that's a step towards breaking any kind of stigma around period. Yes, as we said earlier about educating yes. men and, and, exactly. and you know older older people, people as well. Yeah, so yeah, that's absolutely. fantastic. Have you spoken briefly about politics? So um, more than a quarter of women have been forced to miss work or school because they can't afford period products. Does that surprise you at all? Yeah, it does. Like, sadly, it does. Uh, Because I think in many households, priorities are still gone for other things rather than managing period. We still have girls who miss school because they don't... And that we are talking in the UK, you know? It's it's quite sad, like, what's happening. And and I think it was a good, good step that the government actually made that decision very quickly yeah, from early 2020 i think yeah, they're now going to yeah. administer products in schools yes so i think 22,000 institutions are getting free menstrual product it's seen as a as a luxury item in hospitals they give out you know free shavers and and foam cream but no tampons yeah. and sanitary pads so i mean surprisingly peri- period pants are still taxed at 20% wow compared to sanitary products are taxed at 5% when the word the the product itself says it's itself says period pants right um so this is something we are taking with the i had a meeting a couple of months uh, last month actually with the secretary of state and we're trying to work on to either reduce it down to five percent or have it all the way down to zero percent um so that conversation has started so hopefully that means 
we can sell either period pants for a cheaper price so that more women and girls can afford it, you know, um, because that 20% adds up quite a lot uh, when, you're, when you're paying for underwear. Yes, and so more women can afford it, but also in the long run, it's more cost-effective yes. and in- environmentally friendly yes. as well. Um, obviously, it steps in the in the right direction, and, yes. and it's it's progress. And finally, just some advice from a business perspective: if someone's got an idea and, and they're debating about whether to go and trial trial it out, yeah. what advice would you give to them? Um, many times, when you have an idea, you d- people think that oh, this is going to be so expensive and this and that. There are many things that you can do guerrilla style. Um, try and spend as less as possible. Try to prove their hypothesis or their business idea actually works. So go small. Um, also go niche. Um, you might have many ideas or you might have one business idea, but it has got three different, four different branches. Start with one. Get one thing right. Get one thing done. That's how you start it. And once you get that perfect, then you move on to the next level. Um, but ask for help. There are many times, and networking, like try and attend as many networking possible. There are, I'm guaranteed there are many people who will be happy to help you uh, if you just ask. Since I spoke to Ruby, I can now highlight that she's actually been in conversation with Sainsbury's to launch her product there so it can be more accessible for women to access different products in relation to menstruation. So good luck to her and the future of Wicca Period Pants. And if you want to find out more information about her product, go on to wicca.co.uk, spelled W-U-K-A. Well, that's it from me for season two, episode two of Let's Go Kick-Ass today. Thank you so much to Nikki Yo, Fiona Oaks and Ruby Raut for being a kick-ass Women's Month podcast. I think that was such an incredible lineup and I was delighted to interview all of them. Do feel free to subscribe, comment, rate and share. And I'm Vicky Carter and you keep kicking ass.